Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is the global podcast that shares conversations with behavioral science researchers who have cool ideas, practitioners who have outstanding applications, and accidental behavioral scientists who put all the best thinking into their work, but just without the behavioral science terminology. And we do it by having a lot of fun, don't we, Kurt? Well, I know I have a lot of fun. Not quite sure about you, but... I, I do. And it's also always, always easier to have fun when we have a bright and sarcastic guest like we did today. Oh, absolutely. And in this episode, we share a conversation with Tara Austin, who is a strategist by trade and was recently the chief strategy officer for Kindred in London. Now, many of us know her for her public speaking events, like her presentation at Nudstock earlier this year, uh, and the amazing work that she's done with Rory Sutherland and Sam Tatum and Jez Groom while she was at Ogilvy over the years. Yeah, and we're going to talk about some of her greatest hits because they are quite noteworthy. But before we get to our conversation with Tara, we just want to plant a seed with you. Yes, we do, Kurt. We started this podcast nearly four years ago, and Kurt and I have been funding it ourselves. We don't have any advertisers, and we've never had a big corporate sponsor that takes care of all of our expenses. Expenses like the fees for website design, transcription, hosting, publishing, licensing for recording and editing software, and well... Then there's our time. Tim and I invest probably around eight to 10 hours in each episode, and we do it because we love it. Even after more than 160 episodes, we are doing this because we absolutely love this. We do, and we'd like to ask you to join the others who are supporting us with our Patreon subscription. For less than the cost of one latte per month. One latte per month? One latte per month. You can <laughs> be a subscriber that supports behavioral groups. And we'd like to encourage you to zip right out to www.patreon.com forward slash behavioral grooves and find a plan that fits your budget. You don't have to join at the $100 a month level. No, not even the $24 a month level, but surely $6 a month wouldn't even break a sweat on a COVID account. <laughs> zip right out. Oh, love your terminology, Tim. All right. Yes. And we would appreciate your support and encourage you to check out the options right now. However, if you would rather spend your time leaving us a review, we're good with that as well. Just scroll down to the bottom of your podcast app and give us a quick one. Tell us what you like about the podcast. No need to feel like you need to be all fancy wordy and stuff. You know, you can use words like zip or groovy or dig it. You know, Tim would love that. Just share a couple of words from your heart. That's all that we ask. So with that, Kurt, let's sit back with our lateral thinking cocktail and listen to our conversation with the very engaging Tara Austin. Tara Austin, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Hello, fellow primates. Nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, fellow primates. All right. Tim, uh, are you going to start with the, yeah. the theater on this time? Here we go. Yeah, let's get started. So, I'm, I, I, the viewers can't, or listeners can't see this, but we saw you drinking out of a, what appears to be some kind of a cup. And we're wondering, is it coffee or tea? It is tea. I'm drinking tea, tea today. Okay. All right. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite sports star, TV star, or musician? Musician every time. I don't have a favorite sports star either, so that was an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no fun actor or actress that you would like to, to do instead? Um, who, who would the musician be? Let's, let's, let's go there. So this is supposed Ooh, to be a speed round, but we're yeah, just taking in. Gosh, you get me off on one out. Um, oh, oh, it's got to be Dolly. Dolly Parton, absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, absolutely yeah. We'd love to meet her. Fantastic, yeah. She uh, is an interesting and, and, I mean, deeper person than I had ever and, mm. you know, known. I, knowing her from, like, growing up and Dolly had her, her thing going on that wasn't necessarily my thing. But, man, I, I love what she's done. So, Dolly, if you're listening, I really want you to do a cover of uh, Human by The Killers. I put it on a – I tried to put it on an ad for Dove once, um, and The Killers denied me that pleasure. They, they wouldn't – let us synchronize it for the, for Dove ad, but I've always Damn. thought Dolly's voice singing that song would be really something else. 
That was... Well, right. we'll we'll just pass it That's on the next time we talk you. to her. That's yeah, when we when we talk with Dolly next time, we'll just say, "Hey, by the way, you yeah. got to think about." She that. would make a great guest, though. Man, she oh. is such a she's such a bright ball. I'll tell you. Yeah. Okay, but let, let's keep going with the speed round. Uh, so, would you prefer to be expert in a new language, or expert on a new instrument? I would prefer an instrument. I, I own a harp, and I and I cannot yet properly play it. So, if you could get me learning how to play that, I would be very happy. All right. Okay. All right. So, last last speed round. So, um, in order to stop vandalism, should shop owners paint pictures of cute babies on their shop fronts or stormtroopers? What would be the better uh, solution? Cute there? Babies all the way, and we have the evidence. Although I would love to see what stormtroopers might do. Um, <laughs> I have, come on, that stormtrooper is fearing. I mean, why? I'm not going to vandalize power. this. That power comes in. What? So, actually, this this goes to some of the work that you did. Um, with painting babies on, on actual, you know, the, the metal shutters that go down in front of, of uh, shops. So tell us a little bit about that, that project. So um, back in 2011, London experienced something um, that the council referred to when I worked with them as the summer disturbances, um, but <laughs> everyone else referred to it as the London riots. And it was very, very disturbing time for everybody. Um, particularly as as people were kind of, they were uh, burning down the pub that they drank in. They were looting from the shop where they bought their newspaper. It, they weren't rioting in Mayfair. Um, they were rioting in their own neighbourhoods and destroying local businesses in the process. And so it was it was very disturbing. And um, I got a little insight into uh, the town planning process from a magazine called The Grocer, um, which usually has headlines such as cheese, a big month for cheese. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but the editor of The Grocer um, wrote a very interesting editorial suggesting that the government needed to relax the planning laws and it needed to allow small little greengrocers and, and, and places like this to install shop security shutters. Um, and up until that point, I hadn't realized that shop shutters were such a kind of social ill, um, that they were there in plain sight, and yet they had a um, subconscious influence on me and my thinking about a particular area. Um, they pointed out that it, it's actually quite difficult in, in England to um, install shutters and get planning permission for that um, because they make areas darker because they don't reflect uh, the light anymore of the glass. Um, I think Manchester Town Council declared them a, a danger to women, which seems sort of ridiculous and hyper, hyperbolic. But the, the truth is that places where um, the shutters come down um, are places where crime is present. And everyone recognises that and people feel afraid. Um, and so it is having this, this impact. Um, I'm sure all of your listeners will be very familiar with the idea of the, and it's very much contested, but the broken windows theory um, from Mayor Giuliani in New York, you know, the idea that the visible signal of the presence of crime in an area um, meant that, um, you know, people, people didn't look after the area and, and things like this and places deteriorated. But um, shutters do the same thing. And it, it struck me reading this editorial that part of the problem, part of the reason that people had rioted in the first place was because they didn't care about these places. They didn't recognize actually behind, in, within that shop that they just looted um, was a human being with a business um, and a family and, and something, something that they, they ought to really kind of care about. And the very idea of shutters being sort of dehumanizing, saying, yes, there's crime here, but they also say, you might be a criminal too you're not welcome, kind of um, bugger off. Um, and I, I, at the same time, had a totally different experience of shop shutters, which was an artist called Ben Ein um, had painted a series of shutters on the seafront of my hometown in Hastings, really beautiful sort of pastel colors, big letters that he painted onto them, his, his, his um, kind of signature piece. And these shutters are big, relatively flat, media surfaces that had been painted in this beautiful way that was enhancing the area that was you know you, the way you might think about um graffiti um something that or, or street art a mural and so i kind of put these two things together and sort of thought to myself right well um these shopkeepers need to protect their um their shops um they can't install shutters very easily but when they're there they're having this powerful negative um consequence 
Um, and uh, at the same time, people need to care more about their local environment. Why don't we paint these shop shutters in some interesting way? Um, at the same time, um, I was working for uh, the Ogilvy Group um, as a strategist, and we were setting up uh, what was then called Ogilvy Change. It's now uh, part of Ogilvy Consulting, but was the behavioral science practice within Ogilvy, um, led by Rory Sutherland and Jez Groom. And um, we were setting, it was, it was sort of growing out of the business. And for launch, um, I declared we were going to run our first ever experiment, which was to paint the faces of local babies onto shop security shutters in order to bring down antisocial behavior in the area and try and stimulate people to, to care more about that place. Because first and foremost, the shutters were having this negative impact. But then we also stumbled across some interesting insight um, showing uh, into something called the baby schema. And the baby schema is the proportion of infant faces that make them look infant and cute. Um, it's sometimes called sort of like the, the, the cute effect. Uh, big cheeks, big round eyes, small features. Um, it's the sort of it's the Disney proportions. Anything that has, anything that looks a bit <laughs> cute has, has these kind of proportions. So um, a mini car uh, has, has high baby schema. A pug dog has high baby schema. And some re researchers, uh, Menely Glocker and co at um, the universities of Pennsylvania and Munster, I think it's how you say it, um, had done some research in 2009, which had um, proven that cute really matters to the brain. Um, the, the original theory by this terrible sort of Nazi called Conrad Lorenz uh, into the baby schema started back in the 40s. But in 2009, uh, Melanie Glocker sort of proved, um, putting people into scanners and things, that um, that cute, seeing cute images and seeing high baby schema um, stimulates part of the brain that encourages nurturing behaviours, which mm. is sort of unsurprising, you might say. Um, but they, they kind of proved that cute matters to the brain. And the simple... <laughs> the long-winded way of saying that is that we wanted to paint those faces onto the onto the shutters to to get people to care a little bit more uh, when they're in the vicinity, even at a very very subconscious priming level. Um, could it have an effect? And I'm sort of pleased to say it did. It did seemingly have an effect. And an incredible man called Wing Commander Keith Deer, um, who specialises in actually in w watching eyes theory because babies also have eyes. Um, yeah. He did a longitudinal study uh, when he was at Oxford um, and showed that there was, at the very least, there was some displacement of crime um, from the uh, the area, uh, the um, parade uh, where we had painted the shutters. Um, and that we subsequently got some funding to run a similar experiment um, in Ealing Council, but with this time with photographic images of children rather than graffiti, which was a little bit difficult to sort of rely on. Um, but yes, so I would say babies, not stormtroopers, um, or alternatively, very cute puppies, you know, so I oh, very cute puppies. I wouldn't rule out anything with high baby schema. All right. So the, those big eyes, small mm. other features, those other mm. things. Um, so when, when you're, you're doing this, obviously you ran into some issues with, with city council and ordinances and various different things, but it's this idea of having these metal shutters that come down that are protecting the shops from people breaking in. And yet it, it didn't, it actually impacted that because it signaled that mm. this was a bad area and maybe you're a bad person. And so mm. in those riots and various different pieces, um, but by painting these pictures on, uh, you were able to show that that decreased some of the mm. uh, antisocial behavior that was going on. Yeah, Is that, that kind of- and There was a lot of like, even without the kind of quantitative data, which we, we have now, the qualitative stuff was lovely. So, you know, the, um, the shopkeepers weren't having their shop urinated on. And this is right next to the taxi rank. I should oh, say, yeah. like, hour. Um, so, you know, you're not coming to, to work in the morning and, and having a, yes, unpleasant experience because nobody's going to piss on a baby's face. You're going to, if you're going to do it, you're going to go and do it somewhere else. And so right. I'm not saying that antisocial behavior wasn't displaced. I don't have the data on that. But I am saying if you don't want antisocial behavior to happen on your doorstep, then there's something that you can probably do to to move that away. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. I want to go, go back to uh, part of the story that fascinates me, uh, of course, is the creativity, right? And the innovation of putting all this together. Mm. But you kind of teed up this idea that in your in Hastings, you had seen Ben Ein's work. Mm. Yeah. And how I'm just and 
and, and it to me it almost sounds like a prime right oh. it, it wasn't a prompt it wasn't there with it that you instantly said oh my gosh this is what i have to do it oh. kind of ladled in your unconscious for some time oh. and i'm wondering uh, how long how long had it been that you first saw ben ein's work before you started to put this together tara for, was, for the babies of the burrow it was probably it was a fair few months actually yeah, it was probably four or five months later um, making the connection. But I mean, first things first, it was let's paint these shutters, let's paint some shutters and see if we can have an effect and, and oh. make people care about the area. And then oh. there was the secondary layer of, of um, what are we going to paint on them? Okay, let's paint the babies. I, and I, I, we did explore some other options. So we were looking at, uh, for example, watching eyes theory, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, but the idea that surveillance changes behavior uh, yep. does. And, um, you know, there's, lots of lots of experimentation now around um, angry eyes and bicycle thieves beware we are watching you um wing commander keith sort of specializes in, in that um uh but we we decided that would be too far too orwellian uh, we, I, I had this i had this lovely notion we could paint the iris of the shopkeeper onto the shutter and just there you know the, the take a really beautiful photo and and then paint that precisely their iris you know that kind of fingerprint of but but also have but of course and i think it would have looked stunning and i would love to do that somewhere i think it would be a great experiment to mm -hmm. see what people think of it but um but yeah too orwellian so in, instead we chose um we tried to get kind of close proximity to the um to the audience as well we um we made sure that they were local babies which was actually the hardest part of the whole thing was recruiting uh <laughs> local babies but um yeah and, and, <laughs> you, you Using the baby you could have just you could have just done stu uh, cute stormtroopers, you know. Baby Yoda, can you do a baby stormtrooper? Baby Yodas would work. There we go. Baby Yodas would yeah. work. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, well, yeah, I, I, I'm just I was just fascinated with how this creative process, and I think it's interesting that you started with this. Okay, let, we're going to paint something. Now, mm. what are we going to paint? Yeah. Uh, again, that that's just sort of one of those uh, you pushed off from the shore without knowing exactly what direction you were going to be in. Yeah, and we and reviewed think, a bunch of literature, and those were the. But I think babies kind of won out. Also, as I say, babies yeah. have eyes, so it was a sort of double whammy of. Yeah. The, uh, right. I think it's called yeah. a. Is it a Lollapalooza effect or something where you in where you have these things sort of amplifying one another. And I think in a lot of great, I'm saying it's great, but great behavioral intervention, um, you have, you can't extract necessarily just one principle. It's not just scarcity, it's also anchoring. And it's also um, the Ogilvy team in Australia did a great uh, piece of work for KFC. Um, they inadvertently encouraged a lot of people to buy chips, which kind of contradicted the work we were doing on it, like Public Health England. <laughs> um, but such is the private sector. Um, but they did a really interesting piece of work where they used, um, the, the, the short story is um, they used a, a, a proposition, a frame for $1 chips, where they said maximum four per peeps, maximum four per person. And that was sort of elevating what had been a disclaimer um, to make it uh, the... the the, the campaign essentially and people went crazy for this and they bought loads and loads and loads of chips um and you could say okay it's because they're in limited supply uh scarcity but equally there's a there's an anchoring piece even perhaps a social norming piece there around it's four four is the maximum you can buy but but maybe everyone else is buying four as well and i think pretty much any intervention that you look at um in the real world outside of the lab and and this is where i've sort of built my career i suppose has been applied behavioral science uh, far from academic, but um, it, there are these uh, factors that all work together um, uh, and combine together to kind of hopefully uh, have the result that you're looking for. Yeah, fantastic. So, so Tara, you are a big fan of uh, Edward de Bono. De Bono fangirl, yes. yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so uh, help us understand what this fan kind of thing is and and why and and what is is so important about you know his what six six hats uh thinking different yeah. colored hats yeah huh? um so uh de bono coined the term lateral thinking and yeah. and he's done he's written i think something like 87 books um many of which uh are classic underachiever yeah, yeah yeah exactly um actually the funny thing is uh, i i spoke at um the nudge doc conference where we first connected um about the fact that uh, he's never been 
I think really awarded or highly awarded enough for his no. his work and uh, he was nominated he was nominated he was for nominated. Nobel. yeah he was yeah. nominated but I think you have to be nominated a few times in order to actually get it and I made the case um you know terribly poignantly uh, that um <laughs> uh, we are all in awe of Daniel Kahneman but of course Amos Tversky worked alongside him uh, on prospect theory and and many other uh, great pieces of um, research and, and and contributed towards the field and the and the world, but Amos never got the Nobel Prize because uh, he died, and you can't win it posthumously. And, yeah. and like, that seems something of a tragedy to me. And and without putting too fine a point on it, um, De Bono is in his later years of life. Um, and I, yes, I certainly just don't feel he's got the recognition he deserves because it was way back in sort of 1967 uh, when he wrote uh, Mechanism of Mind. I think mm-hmm. he really anticipated much of what we now know from modern neuroscience is are the underlying um, features of creativity and creative thinking of how we make connections in the brain. And um, and he, yeah, he really did an- anticipate that. Uh, and, and with lateral thinking, he gave a, a, a new language to it. There were, there were other people who had voiced or talked about creativity, and all of them are talking about the same un- fundamental mechanisms, if you like. Um, but I think he really uh, consolidated thinking around creative thought, um, and uh, and he gave us some really interesting techniques. And this is the thing people often think of creativity as, like the mu- muse strikes you. Um, but it's just not as simple as that. Um, uh, and there are techniques that you can use to make yourself more creative, to force creativity. And my my business really has been doing that, has been get extracting creativity from people. And so I became, a few years ago, um, uh, really quite sort of dedicated to De Bono, got trained up in, um, in teaching others about his techniques. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm all round a uh, fan, I suppose you could say. <laughs> I'd say it's more of a crush. It's, well, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for a, a considerably younger man, if I'm honest. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but uh, in uh, in the six thinking hats, he mm. talks about he 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 categorizes different types of thinking with different colored hats. Yeah. And and for those who aren't familiar with uh, with the thesis Could, would you mind just sharing a little bit about and, and well, then let's the zero in on the, the hats because i i don't I, well i don't train the hats uh the hats are but there are two hats in particular that i do use because um, okay. i um in my, because if you use the full suite of hats it's all about um how to decision making processes how to analyze a problem how to break it down how to collaborate around it um, but it's a much it's a kind of business thinking um technique Whereas okay. I use two of the hats specifically in um, uh, in creative and lateral thinking workshops. Um, so two hats, I have them here. Um, I have a green hat and a black hat, and they are. I may. I, I've got physical hats because I um, uh, for the listeners there are two hats in front of me, and uh, I use them in workshops because if somebody's effectively being naughty. Um, and they are wearing the black hat and I, I make them wear it because then <laughs> it's a very powerful disincentive to do it again. Uh, so when someone is wearing the black, black hat, they are um, judging the situation, uh, the black hat of judgment. And um, it means that in the context of a workshop, someone might be saying, well, there's no way we could do that. That's cost too much money. We haven't got enough time, anything at all. Uh, that is detracting from the idea, judging the idea as as not uh, possible or um, anything anything about it. In fact, you can also wear. I can. I have asked people to wear the black hat if they've got a bit too over enthusiastic um, about an idea as well, because equally that is judgment. This is it. This is the idea. This is amazing. And the reason for that is that the purpose of the workshop is not to wear the black hat. The purpose is to wear the green hat. And the green hat is the hat of creativity, of lateral thinking, of making connections in the mind and moving on. So the point with lateral thinking is uh, unlike a vertical judgment-based way of thinking, instead of coming to an idea and then going, great, we've got it, uh, let's, you know, we've, we've got it in the bank. Uh, lateral thinking is about um, being really prolific, coming up with as many ideas as you possibly can in the time that you ha- you can um, and, and forcing that. And, and, and that means, yes, coming up with idea after idea after idea. Um, and later, you wear the black hat. Outside yeah. the workshop, when it comes to um, another point in time, um, you can wear the black hat and you can make those judgments. Um, what is and isn't relevant and what do we need to change about this? But 
you can't run a successful um, creative exercise and really maximize your potential for creativity if you are in a judgment kind of mindset. Um, and isn't isn't lateral thinking too, from my understanding, and I and again, I have not read uh, De Bono since the '90s, probably. So I'm I am not uh, as as up to him, but I but I have. I mean, he hasn't changed anything. There you go. If I could remember it correctly, it would be just perfect. But that, we know that. But but lateral thinking to to me too was always this idea, and what I appreciated about him is it's not like just formulating ideas down that same path. Like if you're going down this road and, and oh, here's another idea and, and we're just going right down this path on these ideas. It's saying, look, let's take a, a sharp left or a sharp right from this path and go off into these weird areas that may have nothing to do all mm. with what that path or where that path is going. So it gives us these different ideas. And again, as you said, when you come back into that judgmental, that black hat thinking mm. that there is this time to, to, to spur those, but it could create these other ideas. That was part of what I, I had, and, and maybe I misconstrued that from something else, but I, I, is that part of this? That's absolutely it. And actually, um, so the stimulus that De Bono uses, um, like his most famous lateral thinking technique is the random word technique. The word has to be random for this for, for it to work. Uh, and that's because everybody thinks that they know the answer to a problem. If I ask you anything at all, you will instantly, your mind will go to, well, that's an answer. And that answer is, is typically lots of money, um, a new computer system, a new technology, a really fancy, whizzy way of doing something. Um, and it's usually uh, prohibitively expensive or um, <laughs> how are we going to solve crime? I know we're going to pay for more policemen. We're, nobody's saying, let's paint some shutters. You know, <laughs> um, but actually, there are solutions um, if we, De Bonnie says our thinking is excellent, but is not uh, enough. Um, and if we want to move outside of the area of the of the obvious, and that might be the right answer, um, then you need to kind of push beyond that. And you need to force new pathways in the mind, uh, force new concepts. And um, so providing something like a, a random word, a truly random word, will open up a new pathway in the brain that just wasn't there before and allow you to, you, you just have to connect that back to your problem. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I think... Um, on the nudge dot call, I um, I asked uh, people to use a random word in order to solve the problem of getting people to wear face masks in stores, and um, I think someone had snake or something, and they so they thought about those those kind of dangly things that come down from the ceiling, uh, like sort of little wavy, I guess almost like a curtain. Um, uh -huh. And actually, when you go into the shop, you have to go through this thing, and you don't want to kind of almost like touch it so you have to be wearing your mask it's like a visible curtain thing that you have to pass through and I thought there's something interesting that like you could take it somewhere else I remember I ran a I ran a workshop for the National Citizen Service in the UK and um, we were trying to it was a it's a program for young people where um, they have to turn up as for a couple of weeks in the summer holidays um, and do this kind of national citizen thing um and the they had a real problem with attrition and dropout rate um because you know 16 year olds just go oh i'm just gonna stay in bed whatever i'm not gonna show up <laughs> and um how to get them to show up and and the ceo actually had the word ikea um and because it, it couldn't be anything like and and sometimes i give people people i say like how would how would Mel B like solve this problem? How would Putin solve this problem? And just opening <laughs> up a completely different pathway um, that you might think about the problem. Um, I'm sorry, uh, but Spice Girls and Putin in the same phrase just yeah, really yeah. just kind of blew <laughs> oh, my yeah. mind, right? Um, and uh, and um, so I, he had the word IKEA. How would IKEA solve this problem? And he had two answers that seemed very fairly straightforward, but not very not very interesting, frankly. And then the last one, he went. And then I was just thinking, Ikea, building blocks. What if we gave everyone a, um, a thing that they, it was just a part of something and they had to show up on the day to assemble this thing. And if they didn't show up, they would know that a piece would be missing and they would mm. be missing. Now in the behavioral sciences, we'd call that a commitment device. We'd spent all day talking about behavioral science principles, but that wasn't what got us to that conversation. What got us to that conversation was IKEA. Now, the beautiful thing about that la great lateral thinking is that everything makes sense in retrospect. Everything <laughs> like ties up, you know, the, the idea makes sense. Ding! 
But hindsight. You have to, yeah. Hindsight, exactly. You have to get there. You have to get there first. Um, uh, I mean, can you can you imagine? It seems like inconceivable now that there was no guest checkout button on web on websites back in the days. You know, all of the thing, these kinds of innovations, which made made millions, I mean, billions of pounds for. Uh, what I think was Costco, one of the big retailers that did it first, um, made so much money for them because people were dropping out otherwise. And it seems really bloody obvious in retrospect, but it wasn't at the time. And that's what lateral thinking is intended to get you to that that place where you, you, you everything makes sense and you've got that one brilliant idea that you need, but you just have to be really, really prolific in order to get there. And you have to be willing to kind of open up these new pathways in, in the mind and think, yeah, how would... Mel B or Putin solve this problem. You'd be surprised <laughs> how much that can help you. And the proof really is in the pudding. I mean, the proof is is in the doing of it. I can talk all day about the, I've got graphs and things about this stuff, but um, actually getting people to do it. I ran a, a workshop. Um, uh, my sister was setting up a business and uh, we had a little family workshop around the dinner table one day because um, she wanted to name her business. And I, so I gave everyone a random word and we came up with a fantastic name for her. Um, um, and we generated, I don't know, maybe 120 names in the space of 15 minutes or so. Wow, um, that's fantastic. I don't All right, so let's, 120, but like, you know, there, yeah. were only, there were only 10 of us or something. But we it, were, was, it was a lot, right? Wow. So let's take lateral thinking to another project, right? Um, so don't mess with Texas. Uh -huh. um, I wish that so, was my project. I've just got the mug. <laughs> <laughs> I just got the merchandise, that's it. <laughs> But I was but I to you guys that I think it's it's probably arguably one of the greatest um, behavioral science campaigns of all time. And it's really it's truly in that intersection of uh, campaign and communications as intervention uh, and narrative as nudge. If you like, I have to talk about nudges and narratives because um, people tend to think of nudges as procedural or, you know, choice architecture, physical things. Um, they don't necessarily think about the. The nudge narrative or the language, the, the framing that is going to um, help someone to think that's a good idea or that's a bad idea. Um, and Don't Mess With Texas is definitely, I have one other campaign that's my favorite as well, but but it's it's right up there because um, it's been enormous. It's so successful uh, in terms of it, it was developed, um, I think in the 70s, to uh, reduce um, littering on the side of the road in Texas, which was a real problem. And you know, there's obviously millions of different approaches you could you could take to that problem. But what they um, decided to do was employ some sort of Dallas Cowboys um, to star in a TV campaign where they were on the side of the road picking up litter and they kind of crushed the can in their hands. And they they were really mad with the people that were throwing the uh, litter for, out of their truck windows. And this is the problem that the people who were doing that were big, burly, you know, van lorry truck driving guys from texas um very strong identity not uh, aligned with you know the kind of free loving look after the planet maybe more hippie sort of type movement so what they did was create a campaign that went with that identity instead of challenging it in any way um by coming up with this line don't mess with texas and the, the cowboys said they crushed the can don't mess with texas um and this campaign became so successful and and, and it was so taken to the heart of the Texan people um, that it is it features on the road signs still on the side of the roads um, in Texas but it features on things like my mug or um, a uh, <laughs> many a t-shirt um, I'm sure is, is sold out over there um, because it's something that yeah people were really able to kind of get behind and embrace as as their own and and that social norming behavior around this is um, is equally as powerful so yeah it's a favorite my other favorite if you want to know is, yes. Um, is jaywalking. It's also an American invention. There we go. Um, so jaywalking, <laughs> until the invention of the motor car, the, the street belonged to everybody. Um, and then in the 20s, uh, these evil motorists came along and started mowing people down. And, and every day the headlines in the papers were mother and children slaughtered by motorists. Um, and the Ow. North American Motor Association thought, this is very bad for business. Uh, we've <laughs> got to do something about this. And so um, we've got to get these pesky pedestrians off the street. Um, <laughs> of course, that would be their solution. Yeah, not, not, exactly. not let's make the car safer. Let's let's get people out of the way. <laughs> exactly. And so um, I, if, you, if you're talking about this in England, I have to clarify it for people that a J 
meant at the time a, a sort of country bumpkin and a, an, a, an idiot who wasn't familiar with the sophisticated ways of the city. Um, and people are extremely sensitive to injunctive norms, moral norms or shaming norms. Um, and so they invented this word jaywalking. Um, and then they put, it was an ad campaign that did it. They put up posters, they, they put up, um, uh, you know, ads in the, in the newspapers. Um, they even, how's this for activation? They, they put up gravestones somewhere for Mr. Jay Walker. And uh, they did all this stuff to um, get people off the, off the street and onto the pavement. Um, and just by having this language, um, there's something called the, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which argues that, um, you know, we are sort of linguistically determined. The, the language you have frames our thinking and that in turn frames our behavior. Um, and I think jaywalking is a really great example of that in terms of shifting people uh, to a, towards a certain behavior and away from something that is um, sensitive, uh, socially sensitive, and so it might be socially shaming. Um, it, that's probably my, my all-time favorite, yeah. The Australians, by the way, are really good at using injunctive norming in their in their public service kind of campaigns. M most other nations are afraid of it because you know, and I've I've worked with government for years, and historically people were always a bit nervous of we don't want to have a negative campaign, we don't want to make people feel shameful about you know doing a bad behaviour. Well, that's exactly what you want to do because you want them to feel good about you know doing the right behaviour. The Australians aren't like that because they're just much tougher and a lot of their advertising contains humour. So um, they've produced things like Dumb Ways to Die, which is an injunctive social norming campaign, but it's funny and it's cute. And you get the message that you'd be an idiot to go onto the, onto the train tracks uh, and die that way. Um, they also produce a fantastic campaign, uh, which is called the Pinky Campaign, um, which uh, features young drivers driving too fast young men um real you know very dangerous problem and again recognizing that social shame was one of the few things that might um encourage young men not to do this behavior they they had a campaign which for the listeners involved a lot of women um holding up their little finger and making a little gesture as if to say this boy who's driving too fast has a very small penis you know it's like ah! and so they they held up the little pinky finger and it became known as the Pinky Campaign. And it was all about undermining and socially shaming young men for dangerous driving behaviours. And it's still, <laughs> you know, it's, again, taken to heart in, in Australia. But again, because there's a sort of humour to it. There's a fun uh, and, uh, mm -hmm. to that. Um, but yeah, very successful techniques that you can use there. Well, Australians have such a, a wonderful slang <laughs> vocabulary that brings that out just yeah. naturally too. the way that they, they, they talk about things. And I used yeah. to have an Australian employee and I was always amazed. And now I can't remember any of the specifics, but yeah. I, I, it fits. It fits with that persona yeah. of, of what we, we in, in think about. Okay. I want to talk about Dolly Parton. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to have dinner with Dolly Parton, what's the first question you're going to ask her? Oh, gosh. I'm being interviewed about interviewing. Oh, um, this is meta. Uh, what do I ask? <laughs> um, we are nothing but meta here at Behavioral <laughs> Grooves. Um, what do I want to ask Dolly? Um, I just fa favorite gig. Well, you know why yeah. and, and yeah. favorite favorite um, music style that you've performed with. Give me the juice. Dolly is what I'd say. Come on, give me the gossip. I want to. I want to hear. Yeah. I want to hear. Well, my mother is a singer, and my my father uh, ran a record label, set up a record label. So, um, I'm sure I'd come up with some interesting questions for her. Um, what 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 kind of music did uh, did your dad produce on his label? Um, everything. Uh, it's called Beggar's Banquet, and it, it's it's sort of a it's a sort of meta label now. It's a label of labels, but he he will argue that they started the indie music scene because they. Put, they set up sort of micro labels for things like um, goth music and and indie music, or um, they I think it was like is it the cult? Uh, they, they they did all this kind of um, punk music. And my dad has uh, a gold record, platinum disc on the wall for Pan Pipes of the Andes, which he is responsible what? for <laughs> uh, bringing to the UK incantations. Um, so yeah, so there was a kind of looking at niche markets and. Uh, so lots of different kinds of weird and wonderful stuff. But That's very cool. Thought, when you said like, you've got a last question, I thought you were going to ask me about the psychedelics because on the uh, on the Nudge Stock uh, um, session, 
I said that um, the only way to encourage um, creative thinking in a really short space of time um, uh, was the best way to do it was lateral thinking, these, these techniques that force, um, force thought like, like that. But I said, but the only other way to do it is, is taking psychedelics. Uh, because there's all this really interesting research coming to the fore now around how psychedelics can t connect the brain. And um, I think it'll be interesting to see if there's more with the microdosing trends in uh, Silicon Valley, for example, whether they are getting uh, truly becoming more creative because of it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That is interesting. I was just, uh, uh, and, and Tim knows this, I, I, I have a, a really eclectic thing in music and one of mine is as heavy metal and and disturbed is a heavy metal um and i was listening to david damien uh the lead singer and he's talking about his uh process of of writing lyrics and various different things and he goes yep every single time i am just high as a kind it's not psychedelics um but you know it, it, it's pot and he goes and, and he was talking about it and he said it what it does is it relaxes me and so it mm. makes these connections between so it, it brings in some of this lateral thinking aspect because he's talking about these connections between you know the type of vocally uh styling that he's mm. using different and bringing that relaxation that allows his brain to make these strange connections between well, pot is uh, it has contains thc which is psychoactive and and, and a psychedelic um and can cause those kinds of yeah. mind states um, but even things like um they say uh, getting into an alpha brainwave state like a dreamlike um state yeah. uh like allows the brain to connect um i've often thought that i really would love to do a creative briefing at St Pancras train station and send the creatives off with a round round day trip to to York or somewhere um, to have them sat on the train uh, thinking about the problem that I've given them because um, I've always found trains to be great spaces for lateral thinking. They are protected time, so much like a, a workshop, this is what we are here to do. Um, you're not going anywhere, you're safe quite womb-like in the kind of motion but you've also got stimulus outside the window effectively random stimulus stuff that yeah. you're, you're not really and and so you I, I i'd love if there's anyone out there who could do the study with me love to do a study around brainwave state on trains if i were running the train system as well today i would be looking at um you know is there even a even is there a product um that you could offer passengers that is a bit like um the sort of we work the office space if you if you have got space on these trains and capacity and uh in the future when all things are good um you know i would really look at get, you know using it to a maximum uh advantage and and yeah allowing those spaces creative train spaces i think that's a i'd love to trans mongolian creative workshop you know i think that would be there you go come out the other we side of it with something really truly groundbreaking but, yeah a we work trains uh, a whole, whole whole business there you go yep you heard it here it, first it is fascinating. So with all this music in your life growing up, my gosh, if your dad was the head of this label, there must have been a ton of music in your house. Mm. As an adult, uh, how do you listen to music? And do you listen to music while you work? I do not listen to music while I work because um, I can't, I'm one of those people, I can't think uh, unless I'm hearing it all in my in my head. And, and I'm too, um, I'm too driven by music. And I like to sort of sing along and um, but but music is in, in, can be enormously powerful to open up those um, uh, th those new associations and connections. I mean, actually, just to go back to the the, the psychedelic experience, um, what they've shown there, the work that's happening at Imperial University here in the UK, um, they are putting together um, specific playlists um, to help patients who are undergoing these clinical trials with psilocybin to help them. Uh, recover from depression and the music is critically important because what the music does is and this is very much the the system one that we're talking about you know uh, the underlying emotional brain uh, music without language speaks to that deep emotional brain and it allows the music effectively allows people to access memories emotions thoughts uh, other things um, that uh, they need to maybe deal with to, to heal from trauma for example and it's the music that is really the the portal to that. Um, so I think it's very important, kind of what you listen to. And like the, the uh, a friend of mine once said to me, uh, I think it was going through a, a breakup, and she said, "Whatever you do, don't listen to 
your music. <laughs> um, you know, she, she said, you know, it'll just take you further down this hole of, you know, and she was talking about melancholy, sad music. And of course, sometimes we want to access that. Like I said, in the psychedelic experience, you want to access some bad or traumatic emotions in order to sort of purge yourself of them, perhaps. But um, but in this case, you know, she was saying you don't want to strengthen those emotional, that activation in the in the brain. You don't want to give it further energy. Um, if anything, you want to do the, the, the opposite, um, which I think was is actually quite good advice if you're going through a breakup to um, to listen to the most positive, even if it feels in some way wrong, um, you know, to try and pull yourself out of it through that emotional access point. Um, I, I do, I, as you can probably tell, I really, really love country music. Um, uh, Gretchen Peters is a, a, a big, big favorite of mine. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I listen to probably quite a lot of country and, um, and anything else here, here and there. So why, why country music? I, I, I gather that your, your dad's label had nothing to do I with country music. I don't think he had it. I don't think he had any country. He did, I, he did bring Dory Previn to the UK. I think he put her, he, he, um, he brought her to the UK at some point. Um, and, uh, I'm a big Dory Previn fan. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with her work, but I think, uh, yeah, I think there's just a lot of poetry and a lot of heart, um, and a lot of, uh, humanity, uh, in, 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 a, in a very simple, um, way. I mean, I'm a big fan of Loretta Lynn and her, uh, mm. you know, the songs that she wrote, she's got one song called The Pill, which is about going on the pill. And, uh, <laughs> and I just think as a historical artifact, it's amazing to think, uh, how lucky women are today to manage their own reproductive health. Um, and this song really brings that to life because she's sort of saying, whoopee, I don't have to be the baby machine anymore. Um, I'm going to go and get myself a mini skirt and all this sort of stuff. And, and um, yeah, it's just, yeah, I think, yeah, those kind of singers really um, capture some interesting emotions. And Gretchen certainly does that. I really, I really admire her work. That's, that's very cool. I, uh, uh, and, and I also love that you are interested in sort of the classics too, Ooh. you know, uh, not, not just, uh, I mean, uh, Gretchen Peterson, uh, certainly yeah. a, a more contemporary artist, but, but to kind of dig, uh, Loretta Lynn, I mean, the coal miner's daughter. Oh, the coal know, miner's I, mean. daughter. I was talking about it just the other day. Yeah. Um, and that, that whole, I mean, my, my, although I sound very posh, I suppose, uh, my, my mother's family are from the, uh, industrial North of Britain. Um, uh, very, very difficult, um, and, and my mother had a very difficult upbringing there, uh, without, you know, without money and without, um, uh, yeah, all the things that I, some of the things that I was privileged enough to grow up with, but, um, and it was a very hard time. And she told me a story about getting her shoes stuck in the tar and, um, and not being able to replace them and like these new shoes and, and what a devastating thing this was for her and for her mother as well. And, and, um, you know, I, I feel it's important to sort of access some of that cultural, memory and and the coal mining daughter does uh, does that you know it's yeah. just like reminding us all where we came from and how it's it's not it's not that all that long ago really um yeah, yeah. well and i think country music has that ability that that ethos of that's the stories that they're telling they're, mm. they're telling those stories of hardships that, and of heartbreak and of mm. all of the human emotions that uh, we we often yeah. try to ignore or look away from, and yeah. I think that's some of the the beauty of it. And sometimes it's just like the it's almost the, the sort of strangeness I think, or the reality of talking about the the pill, or talking about I mean, I mean, there's a hell of a lot of songs about trucks. Let's face it, but um, you know, about, yeah. <laughs> trucks yeah. drinking in my dog. There yeah. you go. Yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, Gretchen has sung a couple of songs about um you know, soldiers coming back from Iraq with PTSD. And, and, and these are things that really, really matter to people are real um, and are being captured in this way that can, uh, yeah, capture this emotion so powerfully. But yeah, I'm yeah. a big fan. Well, we are grateful for your time, your thoughts, and this wonderful discussion about music. It's not often that I, I get to talk to someone who's the daughter of a, a guy that ran a label, that runs a label. I think that that's pretty damn fascinating <laughs> right there. <laughs> so so yeah. thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you, fellow primate. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you. We so appreciate your time and insight. So thanks. 
Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on our recent discussion with Tara, have a free-flowing discussion on whatever else we think of, and whatever comes into our green hat or blue hat brains. Oh, oh, getting into the six hat thinking here, huh? Or the yellow hat or the orange hat or the matus hat. Uh, how many colors? Are, uh, 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 six. What, what are those six colors, by the way? Uh, yeah, red, black, yellow, blue, green, and white, white. Yeah, white. Yes, yes. Yeah, they're, they're all interesting. So, so do you want to start talking about Edward De, Edward De Bono? Sure. What? I mean, that was a big part, right? She she was a she's a big De Bono fan. She really is. Man. Well, you know, and and and, and to to that degree, I, I appreciate De Bono's thinking, right? I I appreciate lateral thinking. I appreciate this idea of trying to understand how we process information and and the hats are an easy way of trying to to look at that it was you know i i I was researching some of the stuff back in the 90s uh was helpful in in a lot of the work that i was doing back then and so really helped in 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 kind of forming some of those initial concepts for me so i worked out good was later to the game i didn't really come into the whole uh excitement around lateral thinking until the early 2000s and uh, with the the great stories, the great examples that that he gives about like the the man and his son are in a car accident and the father dies on the scene. The child's rushed to the hospital. When he arrives, the surgeon says, oh, I can't operate on that boy because he's my son. And our first go-to is, oh my gosh, how could that be? Well, the surgeon was his mother, you know, the surgeon. Yeah. Right. And, and yet we have this implicit bias, you know, this natural thing that says, oh, if it's a doctor, if it's a surgeon, it's going to be a man, um, you know, for, you know, and we just have these societal norms. The other one that was my favorite, and I just have to mention this because I think it's so cool, is that two young men are applying for a job and they both look the same. They have the same last name, the same address, the same birthday, but they're not twins. So what is it? How how can they not be twins? Do they have the same DNA running through their brain? Their, their... They have the same DNA even. Wow. So how does that work? They're two of triplets. You sure that wasn't quadruplets? <laughs> Six tuplets? Six tuplets. That's right. Oh, there you go. But, uh, but, but again, it, 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 it focuses us on this idea that we need to uh, our initial response on things sometimes goes to the immediate and it, it is implied by the biases that we have and, and lateral thinking. So the definition, right, is a manner of solving problems using an indirect and creative approach via reasoning that is not immediately obvious. So again, these are, these are riddles that are there that aren't immediately obvious the answer and you have to use some deductive and various different other types of reasoning in order to figure these out and some lateral thinking on that because if you just keep going down the same path so you know i have lots of ways of of thinking about this but to get to the correct answer you got to think a little differently around this and our lazy brains really struggle with putting the effort into making that happen and i and the first thought that came to my mind when we were thinking about this, Kurt, was, was the media, you know, whatever, whatever media you're listening to, they're, they're telling us a story for, for a specific reason. They're telling us not only what to think about, right, by how they're curating the, the list of stories that they're going to report on, they're also informing us how to think about it. And, and that is, uh, that's problematic when it comes to actually having, you know, uh, any any society, uh, a liberal democracy, especially where people get to vote and supposedly have a, a real voice, when how much how active are we really if we're not using some kind of you know creative lateral thinking at least from time to time on big issues? Well, you bring up a really good point. It's that lazy brain that we have, and this idea that we fall for those pieces of information that are available, vivid, uh, as you said, when we are only getting information from one source, then we need, it's problematic because we need to be able to look at things from a variety of different things. I was just reading the other day and I can't remember who was writing it, but this idea that, you know, 
everybody. You know, we often think of this from a political perspective and we go, oh, conservatives only listen to Fox News. Um, and yet, you know, everybody, we have our bubbles. We have these little uh, bubbles, particularly given today with social media and the way the algorithms work, that they only show us things that that we like because that gets us to stay on longer. Um, and yet, the way that we actually get to good creative thinking, the way that we get to thinking about things from different perspectives is to actually uh, indulge in, in information that we don't like, in, in opinions that are different and uh, contrary to ours. And only through looking at things from all sides of an issue can we really get a really good grasp of everything that is coming in. So those are some of the aspects that I think lateral thinking is really trying to tell us that is to say, look, you can't look at, you got to take, you got to take walk all the way around uh, an issue. You got to, you got to look at it, not just from the front, but you got to go and look at it from the side. You got to get behind it. You got to understand what are all the different aspects of it in order for you to really have a good perspective and to come up with a solution that is going to be uh, both correct and, um, and creative. Yeah, well, you you sent me an, an email recently from Ozan Verrill. Mm, yeah, that was a really cool. Uh, he had he had sort of like a little three piece approach that I thought was really cool. Well, he talked about this idea of of how much of our thinking is is original anymore, right? How much of our thoughts are just regurgitating the ideas that others do. And he brought up this idea and he thought, you know, a lot of it really is. And I thought to myself, I'm going, crap, I think that's probably true. It's like, we, we do this. And and he had three, three things. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with all three, but he was talking about number one, think before you research. So he actually talked about writing things down, writing your own thoughts down before you go out and search on, on, on any topic, right? Um, question what you read is the second thing. You know, make sure you're, you're looking at things through a very skeptical perspective and, and, and eyes. And three, consume less and create more. So uh, of, of all those three, the, the, the one I have a little bit of difficulty with is this think before you research. And, and, and the reason um, is this concept of, you know, we get anchored in, we have, we get uh, confirmation bias. So if I write something down about what I think on a topic, then I'm probably more likely to, when I start doing the research, to be looking for the, that research that confirms that pre-held belief that I have. Um, and so I think there's some, there's some concern in writing that down, although I still think it's a really good idea. I think there's probably some caveats that we had, and you and I had exchanged some emails about this one being about, well, can we, can we think about it from an Annie Duke perspective of saying, Hey, so I write this idea down and how, 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 um, how confident am I in this? Am I 80% confident in this? Am I 50% confident in this idea? At least to get it so that it doesn't become this black and white that yes, this is, this is the, the be all end all of this. And thus I might, my mind will automatically go to some confirmation bias on it. Right. Yeah. So that was, that was one thing. Well, it makes me think about uh, when I'm preparing to uh, write songs for a record I like to use a lot of uh, divergent thinking, right? I like to expose myself to a lot of different ideas. And then when it gets into the actual writing of the songs or, or recording them, going into the studio and recording, then it gets very focused. And I don't listen to anything. I'm not listening to any music outside of what I'm in the process of creating at the point that I actually am going to record it. And like, there's this focus that sort of happens naturally that, when preparing to go into the studio that doesn't exist before that, you know, before yeah. I want a lot of information. And then when I'm actually sort of in the creation mode, then it's like, okay, turn off, turn off all the outside stimulus. Well, we just interviewed Roy Baumeister the other day, and that's another episode that'll be coming out shortly. Um, but one of the things that he said that I found really interesting, and when you were asking him about listening to music when you work, and again, he said, yes, but it had to be music without words because he said, when I'm working, I can't have anybody else's words in my head, yeah. right? I can't have anybody else's voice in my head, which I'm paraphrasing there, but that gets into this, right? It gets into 
these other people's words are in our heads and are we just regurgitating those? Or as you said, when you're in that zone, are you so focused in on what you're doing? So I think there are ways, and I, I think that's really true. And I think lateral thinking is a way of coming at it that De Bono brings a, a perspective on uh, to, to get us to think, not just regurgitate. So, wow. Nice wrap on that, man. That was really, you just beautifully brought that full circle. Well, well there you go. That's, that's what we do. We bring things full circle here, you know, just like a baby spinning right round, right round, you know? So is that the tee up for talking about babies in the burrow? Oh, babies in the burrow. Wow. My gosh, there you go. Which was another interesting part of Tara's conversation. Right. And, 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 it's so fascinating because I've heard the story, you know, from Rory and, and others. It's been publicized for a number of years now. But this was the generation story. This was the yeah, right. this was the look at the, the history of how this came about. I read the the summary, the the Cliff Notes version of this before. And this was a deep dive into it, which was just fascinating. And you know, the the work and and I loved her concept of what was the paper that that she was reading the shopper right which was the initial piece and again it goes back to these other getting inspiration from things that aren't necessarily you know directly associated with the the concept that we're trying to work on yeah, and then she connects it with this paper from 2009 uh, about uh, what she called, you know, cute matters, but it's actually called baby, baby schema in infant faces induces cuteness, perception, and motivation for caretaking in adults. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do like, I do prefer cute matters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but she connects it with this paper that at the time was like a, a couple years old. Yeah. And then, and then with the artist Ben Ein and, 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 putting all that together with the London riots. So all these disparate things coming together to create this idea of, all right, we have these metal shutters that go down every night around this area. And let's put something on those shutters that will hopefully reduce some of the crime. Yeah. And let's use babies and use good artists and use babies from the local area. And just fascinating the, the the way that that whole concept came about. So you and I live in Minneapolis where George Floyd was murdered. And we, I think that the, the city, the community in general has done a wonderful job of bringing the image of George Floyd to the forefront. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there are posters on of George Floyd with, with, with the, you know, I can't breathe or say his name or, you know, some kind of reminder on lots and lots of shops uh, yeah. around uh, the, the co-op where, where Katie and I get our groceries has a huge mural painted outside just of George Floyd's face. Those are great reminders. And at the same time, we're right now we're suffering from a terrible crime wave. So, so I don't know if there's any direct thing there, but I, I like the I like being reminded of George Floyd with with the image all the time. And I guess this gets me to the question of why aren't more cities using a babies in the borough approach in their higher crime areas? Why why haven't they gone to the shop owners and said? Give us the pictures of your kids and we're going to paint them on your shop so that there's this direct connection to these beautiful baby faces uh, to to hopefully deter crime. Yeah, you have to wonder. And some of it is probably just physical, right? What, where are they going to put those pictures? What are the, you know, what's the real estate ability to do that? Um, Others, you got to look and think about, all right, how does that, parlay into you know who owns the shop versus who owns the building versus others so there's a lot of logistical problems that come with that but still to your point i agree i mean you think about the the impact that that can have and it's a simple impact uh, or a simple process to do it relatively low cost and if it can make an impact that is not only reducing crime but creating a more vibrant uh, area to to be in is just a whole positive across the board. 
but you know, nobody's ever said that city governments are are the be all end all of of uh, forward thinking. So we don't have we don't even have to to um, to speak specifically to city governments. I think we can just talk about government in general. <laughs> and and the idea of actually using you know behavioral science research to do some good, yeah, you know. <laughs> but we digress. All right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. So anything else? Uh, you know, I, I think we've we've covered a lot. So I would just uh, encourage listeners to to hang on because we have a bonus track coming up right after this. Hey, Groovers! This is Tim with our bonus track for our episode with Tara Austin. Our discussion with Tara reminded us of some important facts about what motivates human behavior. First, she shared the important project she did with Ogilvy Change on the babies of, in the borough. Now, on the heels of the London riots in 2011, she wanted to see how a paper she'd read a few years earlier might apply to reducing crime in a particular neighborhood in England. With the help of a master street painter, Ben Ein, the team gathered photos of babies from locals in the neighborhood and had them rendered on the security doors and shutters of the businesses. The data they gathered lacked a control group which rendered it unusable for academic purposes. However, they saw declines in theft, vandalism, and public urination year over year with the addition of the babies' faces to the shops. This illustrates the powerful effect that priming and prompting can have on our behaviors, especially when the prompts are images and not words. Secondly, Tara's crush on Edward de Bono was fantastic to talk about, especially when it came to lateral thinking. Too often, our thinking is heavily guided by outside forces, the media, our social networks, and just plain laziness. From time to time, and especially on important topics and themes in our lives, employing lateral thinking can help us with our general level of decision-making. Better decision-making is likely to lead to greater happiness in our lives, so what is there to lose? Now it's time for our groove idea for the week. When you reflect on Tara's comments about her, the Babies in the Burrow project, what are the images that you have around you most of the time? You're probably still working from home, and I'd like you to think about taking a deliberate inventory of the images that you have in your workspace. What do you see around you when you're sitting at your desk? You might have some inspirational word art, or more importantly, what images are in view when you're sitting in your workplace? Now ask yourself this question. What impact are those images having on you? Are they creating the right set of prompts and primes that enable you to live the happiest and most productive life you can? Jot us a note about what you experience and what changes you've made or not made. We'd love to hear about it. So from the world headquarters of Behavioral Groups, we wish you a good week and to keep on grooving. Mm-hmm.